our reading is taken from Acts chapter 26, which you can find on page 1123 of the Church Bible in the back of the seat in front of you, if there is a back of a seat in front of you. So Acts chapter 26, page 1123, we'll be reading the entire chapter. <coughs> Acts 26. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews. And especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jews all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O King, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus, with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness on what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and to all the Gentiles also, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I have had God's help to this very day, and so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Christ would suffer 
and as the first to rise from the dead, would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice, because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray God that not only you but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. The king rose and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. They left the room and while talking with one another they said, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is the word of the Lord. But what to speak about at a united service? Well, those of you from church traditions which follow a liturgical calendar will see that I've chosen the conversion of the Apostle Paul, whose conversion was celebrated on Wednesday. Others of you will think, yes, conversion, the start of what one might call our transformation pathway, is an appropriate choice. For unless we um, had the good fortune to have been brought up in a Christian family and have always consciously followed Christ, then our turning to Christ is one of the most distinctive and unifying features as Christians. Well, you'll have realised probably from the reading that uh, the Apostle Paul is in Caesarea Maritima, which is a very impressive uh, Roman headquarters for their legion in the Middle East. Today, it's still a most impressive ruin. It lies uh, just north of Tel Aviv. And Paul here is on trial. He is defending himself, we read, against all the accusations of the Jews, 26 verse 2. His defence, it says, literally apologia, from which we get our term apologetics, which basically means a reasoned argument for the truth of Christianity. Now, I want to just ask of this chapter, really I'm asking of from chapter 21 to 26, I'm asking just three questions. Is Paul guilty of anything that either Roman law or Jewish religion could hang on him? Secondly, is his conversion a model for ours? And lastly, what is the issue that really upsets his opponents? An issue which forms the foundation of the Christian worldview, that there can be peace with God and life after death. So, taking them in turn. Is Paul guilty of anything in either Roman law or Jewish religion? What did the authorities make of him? Well, we have to go back two years from 59 AD, which is where chapter 26 is, to 57 AD in Acts 21. Paul had spent a decade in the eastern Mediterranean disseminating the news 
that what God had promised since the time of Abraham, 2,000 years before, and throughout the time of all the Old Testament prophets, that that has now come to be fulfilled. That all people of all nations were now able to be reconciled to God as a result of what Jesus, the Son of God, God on earth, had been able both to achieve through his death on the cross and his exclusion from God the Father instead of us, and what he'd been able to provide as evidence that it worked, that it met with God's approval as a substitution for us, and uh, evidence that it was for real, which is why he was raised from the dead on the third day. Now, on return to Jerusalem, 2120, he learnt from James the Apostle that while, quote, thousands of Jews had believed, in fact, many others were far from happy. In fact, some of them were out to kill him. He then, over the following two years, 57 to 59, had gone on to defend himself before Jewish crowds. The Roman governor Felix the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, and then, after two years' imprisonment, uh, before the new governor, Festus, and now King Agrippa II. They come to hear his case. So let me read to you chapter 25 and a few verses from there. Again, you'll find it, 1, 1, 2, 3. The next day, King Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man? The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting, that he ought not to live any longer. I found he'd done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I might have something to write. For I think it unreasonable to send a prisoner on to Rome without specifying the charges against him. For two years, Paul had been in prison. He's in prison partly for his own safety, so that the Jews can't kill him, and partly because if he were released, the mob would riot. So, Festus has a problem. But fortunately, his dilemma He's solved because Paul has appealed to be tried by Caesar. He can just pass him on to Rome and that will be him out of the way. But he can't specify any charges against him. And to his credit, the governor thinks this is unreasonable. Now, how had Paul come to be in prison two years before? Well... And when he arrived back, there were agent provocateurs who had encountered him in what is modern-day Turkey. And they disliked what he was teaching. And they came and they stirred up the people. There had been much shouting, no chance of a reasoned investigation or a sane debate. The Roman authorities and some of the Jewish council had realised that these accusations were baseless. 
and they could be easily countered. There had been adverse or even perverse spin. For example, the agitators accused Paul of teaching against both Jews and Judaism, our people and our law. But Paul says, not so. He explained it was all part of God's grand plan, first revealed to Abraham and through the Old Testament prophets. 26 verse 22, I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Some others had made false allegations. They assumed, for example, in 21-29, that he brought a Gentile Trophimus onto the sacred temple mount. Not true. There had been some ignorance. 21-38, the Roman officer had uh, revealed that he'd, first of all, thought Paul was a notorious Egyptian terrorist with 400 followers or so until Paul spoke to him in Greek, which he could understand. There had been false information. On the steps of the barracks, Paul had been given a chance to address the crowd. When he spoke in Aramaic, they realised, of course, that he was one of them, not the latest peddler of some kind of nonsense from some far remote corner of the empire. Well, that had all been enough to attract a crowd which had turned into a mob with violent intent towards Paul. They'd wanted, in weary, to beat him to death. Fortunately, the authorities, the Romans, stepped in, restored order, stopped an unlawful attempted murder, tried without success to find out what Paul had said that had caused such an incident. They'd not been able to get to the truth because... Reason had been drowned out by a mob baying for blood. When the founder of Methodism came through Basingstoke in the 18th century, John Wesley, he described our forebears as, quote, like the wild beasts of Ephesus and particularly thick of head. (laughs) Baying like this mob we've read about. But Wesley was a staunch advocate of reason. He said, Christianity is a rational religion and all irrational religion is false religion. Now we today in the United Kingdom very rarely have mob violence, thankfully. But we do have well-organised lobby groups, often focusing on one particular issue or another who stir things out, sort of rather stir things up on the internet. They put out false and misleading information and through such social media outlets intimidate in the hope of silencing rational debate by those who disagree with them. MPs suffer adversely from that. The debate is not allowed to start. The objective is to close it down before it has begun. It is the modern expression of argument weak, shout louder. Well, the Romans were quick to restore order and to prevent a murder. Throughout, they wanted to publicly hear the charges against Paul and test them in open court. Each time, when they got the opportunity, they had concluded there was no case to answer. 
How refreshing to read in December a report by the R Equality and Human Rights Commission which hit out at organisations which try to suppress Christianity for the fear of causing offence. One section is reported as saying, there is no right in Britain not to be offended. And in our view, respect for people's right to express beliefs which others might disagree with is the mark of a democratic society. And our Prime Minister in Parliament agreed that the ability to speak freely, respectfully and responsibly about one's religion should be a jealously guarded principle. She went on to say, I'm sure that we would all want to ensure that people at work do feel able to speak about their faith and also feel able to speak quite freely about Christmas. Free speech and reasoned debate enables all of us, whatever our viewpoints are, to assess claims and to arrive at the truth. Secondly, is the conversion of St Paul intended to be a model of Christian conversion today? Well, yes, but only if we distinguish between the dramatic outward accompaniments and the essential inward experience. It is not necessary for us to be blinded by a flash of divine lightning, but it is necessary for us to have a personal encounter with Jesus Christ and to surrender our autonomy to his authority. What stands out in this narrative is the sovereign grace of God. Saul did not decide for Christ, to use some of our modern jargon, it was Christ who decided for him and laid hold of him. The evidence is really indisputable. In Luke's first account in Acts of Paul's conversion in chapter 9, he begins with a reference to Saul still breathing out murderous threats, probably depicting him as a wild and ferocious beast. And Paul in 26.11 talks of his former obsession against the Christians. He was in no position to consider the claims of Christ. His mind was poisoned with prejudice, and yet within a few days, he had turned to Christ, was baptised, and had become a Christian. You see, that laying hold of him was also C.S. Lewis's experience. And as you'd expect from a professor of English literature, he expressed it so well in his spiritual autobiography, Surprised by Joy. Chapter 14 is entitled Checkmate, and Lewis uses the analogy of a contest between two chess players, seen at first as his own philosophy versus that of his Christian friends, among whom were J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote, of course, Lord of the Rings. But in reality, it becomes apparent that Lewis's opponent is God. Not only the views of his friends, but the books he was reading were, he says, beginning to turn against me. Indeed, I must have been as blind as a bat not to have seen long before the ludicrous contradiction between my theory of life and my actual experience as a reader. All over the board, my pieces were in the most disadvantageous 
positions. Soon I could no longer cherish even the illusion that the initiative lay with me. My adversary began to make his final moves. Lewis then recounts his turning point. The odd thing was that before God closed in on me, I was in fact offered what now appears that moment of holy free choice. And here Lewis describes his choice to open the door or to keep it shut. He then adds, I chose to open, to unbuckle, to loosen the rein. I say I chose, yet it did not really seem possible to do the opposite. And finally he describes his sense of being pursued. You must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. Of course, this conversion was to God. Belief in Christ for Lewis came a year later. But this kind of um, barrier to belief in one God was in fact his biggest hurdle. But we need to make two qualifications in regard to God's pursuing of us. Firstly, God's grace in conversion of Saul was not sudden. Sure, suddenly there was a light which flashed all around him. But this was by no means the first time that Christ had spoken to him. It was rather the culmination of a process. Jesus said to him, it was hard for him to kick against the goads, likening Saul to a stubborn bullock and himself to a farmer using a goad, which is basically a stick with a point in it, to break the bullock in. And what are these goads? Well, they would include his conscience, that little moral barometer which unsettles us when we act contrary to it. Then there would have been the persistent rumours. Remember, we're only about two years after Christ rising from the dead. Persistent rumours in Jerusalem that Jesus had risen from the dead. There were over 550 different people on at least a dozen different occasions who over that six-week period had seen him, touched him, talked with him, even eaten with him. And they were there, most of them, in Jerusalem or in the Galilee. And then there was the witness of Stephen, who was the first Christian martyr, stoned to death before Saul's eyes. And above all, there were his doubts. The psychologist Carl Jung said, fanaticism, and Paul's already admitted to this, is found only in individuals who are compensating secret doubts. And secondly, God's grace in the conversion of Saul was not compulsive. 
The Christ who appeared to him did not turn him into a robot or compel him to act as if in some kind of hypnotic trance. On the contrary, Jesus asked Saul a probing question. Why do you persecute me? And Saul answered with two counter-questions. Who are you, Lord, and what do you want me to do? His response was rational. It was conscientious, and it was free. So the cause of Saul's conversion was by God's sovereign grace. But sovereign grace is gradual and gentle. Divine grace does not trample on human personality. And lastly, the issue. In 23.6, before the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, Paul claims that it is, quote, because of his hope in the resurrection of the dead that he was on trial. A hope he knew would happen because Jesus had risen from the dead and Paul had seen him. Christianity is an evidence-based faith. Christian belief in the resurrection of Jesus, though is not simply an event in human history, because Christ is alive and can be accessed, it has contemporary and everlasting value. Sir Norman Anderson, QC, is amongst the most impressive Christians that I've ever met. He was a wartime colonel in military intelligence in North Africa, and a one-time professor of law and the director of, inst- of the Institute of Advanced Legal Studies at the University of London. Sir Norman had a son, Hugh, who was president of the Cambridge Union, tipped by Hugh Gateskill, the Labour leader of the day, as a future Labour Prime Minister. Sadly, Hugh died of cancer at the age of 21. The week he died, Sir Norman was due to do a series of live talks on the radio about the essential validity of the Christian faith and particularly the resurrection of Christ. When asked by his interviewer what it meant in his own life to be sure of the resurrection and life after death, he replied, an enormous amount Although clearly it is a mystery why one person gets cancer and another does not, why one married couple loses a child who is very dear to them and another does not. Life is full of mysteries like that. But I am quite sure, he said, that we have a good God. And the reason why I am sure that we have a good God is because Jesus Christ was so infinitely good. God has shown himself in history and because of the resurrection I was absolutely sure that Hugh and I would meet again one day, that there is life after death. It is not just futility and emptiness. So here we have a man who has lost his only son and yet he is able to say, as a lawyer used to dealing with evidence, that he was convinced on the balance of the probability of the evidence that Jesus did in fact rise from the dead. So Paul, like the other 550, actually saw the risen Christ. 
Sir Norman assessed their evidence and came intellectually to the verdict that they were reliable witnesses. And then, acting volitionally, he'd worked it out intellectually, he now had to decide what he was going to do with the conclusion. But acting volitionally, he entrusted himself to the call of the risen Christ and found him to be alive and able to sustain him through whatever life threw at him. And it got worse. So, as Christians, we believe in freedom of speech, rational public debate, and an evidence-based faith. As Christians, we believe in a God who entered our world so he could facilitate our reconciliation to him and our transformation by him. We turn from resisting him to following him and we prove our change of heart and mind by our changed lives before we go to be with him forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would both comfort and secure and, uh, su- and uh, make us have a sense of security from the knowledge that Christ did rise from the dead and that uh, he speaks through his words recorded in scripture to us today and he calls us to follow him and we pray that all the time we have freedom to express it we might claim it and look forward to eternal life. Amen.